This episode is part of a lecture series on Simone de Beauvoir, brought to you by me, Lisbeth Schoonheim, and Ashika Singh. We are asking the question, how are her writings and her activism relevant to us today? Simone de Beauvoir may be known for her landmark publication of The Second Sex and for her contributions to the French existentialist movement. But, as this series will show, there is so much more to be discovered in what she said with regards to phenomenology and various forms of oppression and resistance, and in what she did as a Marxist, a feminist, and as a supporter of anti-colonialist struggles in Algeria and beyond. In this lecture series, we will have a number of scholars presenting on Simone de Beauvoir's ideas and her life. We want to understand how her oeuvre might provide tools in making sense of 21st century issues and events. These presentations were part of the Simone de Beauvoir conference hosted by KU Leuven's Institute of Philosophy, which took place from the 2nd to 4th of June 2021. More information on the conference can be found in the description of this lecture series. These presentations were recorded during an online conference, and so you might find some issues with the sound quality. We hope that you enjoy this episode, and do stay tuned for others over the course of the next weeks. This sixth episode of our lecture series is presented by Dana Miranda, who is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at University of Massachusetts in Boston. He will be talking about repossession, thinking through the ambiguity of decolonization. His talk will be followed by a Q&A moderated by Thivadar Vervoort, who is a PhD researcher in political philosophy at KU Leuven. And today we'll start off with a presentation by Dana Miranda. Dr. Dana Francisco Miranda is an assistant professor of philosophy and faculty fellow for the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, as well as a research associate for the philosophy department at the University of Connecticut. His research is in political philosophy, Africana philosophy, phenomenology, and psychosocial studies. His current book manuscript, The Coloniality of Happiness, investigates the philosophical significance of suicide, depression, and well-being for members of the African diaspora. His most recent work has been published in Entre Lettres, the Journal of Global Ethics, the Zino, the Quarterly Journal of Design, and the APA blog, Black Issues in Philosophy. He also currently serves as the Secretary of Digital Outreach and Chair of Architectonics for the Caribbean Philosophical Association. And Dana's presentation is titled Repossession, the Ambiguity of Decolonization. Dana, the floor is yours. Thank you, Tiva. Um, can everyone hear me first? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, so the first thing I want to say is thank you to the organizers. So thank you, Ashika, Lisbeth, Karen, and Julia for putting this together. I had a wonderful day. Um, to be brutally honest, I plan for 20 to 25 minutes, but Tivadar, you're going to have to hold me. I talk way too much and my PowerPoints are filled with information. So just letting everyone know. Um, so again, thank you everyone for this wonderful conference. My presentation that will stay within the time frame, give or take a few minutes, is repossession, the ambiguity of decolonization. And so what I really wanted to do is do a reading of Simone de Beauvoir, Franz Fanon, and Amilcar Cabral, and less of a comparative reading of their philosophical analysis regarding decolonization, counterviolence, liberation, freedom, 
but really how can I work with these thinkers in order to articulate a struggle that I've been dealing with or really thinking with um, for many years. So within this comparative analysis, within working with these thinkers, again, the focus is gonna be on decolonization and in particularly how ambiguity, anguish, um, responsibility, existential themes are inherent in decolonization actually give us a better understanding of decolonization. And I think each of the three thinkers, even though they're dealing with different situational contexts, even though Fanon and Simone didn't know each other, again, the contexts are going to be different. Um, and so these differences are important to know, but I also think there are gonna be heavy similarities that I think add to this notion of what I call repossession. So none of the three thinkers use it. They use their own language, I will be sure to note that. But I think together they give us a sense of what repossession means for both material decolonization, the decolonization of nations, the decolonization of culture, and as a scholar on psychosocial studies, again, internalized oppression. So repossession is trying to capture the ambiguity um, and the freedom inherent with on all these subject areas. And so to begin, I want to start with Bouvoir. And so the first slide is an eye for an eye, which deals with the writings, um, particularly on retribution, punishment, um, a particular sense of counterviolence that is actually more, I'd say more direct, more personalized before she articulates a much larger notion of oppression and the ethics of ambiguity. And so Beauvoir and an eye for an eye in talking about retribution and talking about punishment relays a certain vignette about torture. And she's talking about after the French occupation by um, Nazi Germany, the collaborators were being tried, the collaborators were being punished, French collaborators in particular. So some are being shot, some are being similarly executed, some are being brought to trial and the whole French public according to Beauvoir it was due to their public opinions, their want, their desire to have these collaborators punished. And so she brings in the notion, well, what is this type of punishment? Is it retribution? Is it a form of justice? And she begins by talking really about an eye for a knot. So for a uh, individual that was in a Nazi concentration camp and once liberated, they automatically or immediately took vengeance on Nazis. This could be murder, this could be um, certain type of violence, but is an eye for an eye. And Bouvar says, well, what is actually going on in the existential sense? Well, for her, the notion that they must, and here I'm quoting, they must reestablish concretely and genuinely the re reciprocity between human consciousness. That it's not simply the violence that is of issue, the violence is meant to put us back in reciprocity. So the torture in denying my humanity and denying my freedom is now going to be faced in the same condition. And in that condition, he's meant to, or she is meant to, or they are meant to realize that they are denying a sense of ambiguity in the human condition. They are denying a person's humanity. However, torture, violence in this immediate way is not guaranteed. That someone can just be faced with violence and not have an existential awakening that, aha, I'm being faced with this condition 
because I deny the humanity of another person or deny the freedom of another person. And she notes this a little bit later on on page 249, where she says the affirmation of this reciprocity and the reciprocity is um, interdependence um, or interhuman relations is actually a freedom that is being compelled in the torturer, being compelled in the former oppressor. And so as a condition of freedom, in order to reinstitute human conditions or interhuman relations where people can be free, you're compelling freedom in another. But for Bouvard in both the eye for an eye and in the ethics of ambiguity, she doesn't see actually any issue with this compelling of freedom. So she states rather bluntly that the foreign consciousness and here she's talking about the torture more specifically, must be led from the outside to draw from itself sentiments that one cannot impose on it without its consent. You can't make the torture realize that another person does deserve freedom, that they do exist in interhuman relations, or that they are not an object or pure facticity for you. You can't make them realize that even with um, compelling or persuasion, they have to come to that realization. And Bouvard notes, not all torturers, not all oppressors get to that realization. But even if that is the case, counterviolence or just immediate violence does have some necessity when we're talking about the situation or the larger situation of our societies, the larger situation of our freedoms or unfreedom. And so I'm beginning with an eye for an eye because it's an earlier work that is talking about post-French occupied, or sorry, German occupied France. And now in the ethics of ambiguity, Bouvard is gonna extend that notion of violence and talk about one, colonial situations. She's gonna also talk about enslaved situations. And this is where I wanna begin. So there are some elements that stay with Bouvard in this, that you may compel freedom in others, or compel them to at least respect the freedom of others using violence. Even if that doesn't lead to realization on the part of oppressors, it can still lead to a greater social freedom. And those are the exact stakes. And so as we turn to ethics of ambiguity, I turn to, again, revolt. I turn to the situation of the French colonies or just colonies in general. Um, we turn to situations of African enslavement and we're getting these notions being repeated, but also further polished and developed. So Bavar notes that revolt is not a harmonious development of the world. It's explosion, it's an exploding or exploding at the heart of the world to break its continuity. There's something in society, there's something in the relationships with oppression that leads to individuals being treated as objects as being treated as pure facticity. And in order to break that relationship, it's not gonna be an orderly development, it's gonna be an interruption or eruption. It's gonna be a breaking apart of um, a relationship that has denied human or interhuman relation. In a particular note in the ethics of ambiguity, um, particularly chapter two that I found enlightening, was their section on colonies and slaves. I only took the slave section because again, I have too many quotes to begin with. 
But one thing she talks about when referring to um, slavery, even though she's drawing more heavily on transatlantic slavery, she doesn't exactly state that, but her examples really draw on that. But in the case of a slave, in the case of their servitude, in the case of their oppression, she has a long-winded explanation of, well, how do some slave masters justify this condition? How do they justify treating human beings as objects? And she says, one thing they do is say the slave doesn't want to be free. They don't know what to do with their freedom. They might even give examples or vignettes of slaves who are free and don't know what to do with their freedom. They run back to their masters. And Bouvoir is not convinced by these articulations because for her to want existence, to want to disclose the world, and to want men to be free are one in the same way. That if we're going to have a, a world um, that is conditioned by possibility, that is conditioned by interhuman relations, for Bouvard as a woman, a French white woman, um, that Nathalie Naya also calls a cologne, a colonizer, you do not have to be on the side of oppressors, even if your situation is not the same of, as the oppressed. Even if you don't live in the same area or face the same conditions, your freedom in order to be possessed with Bouvard has to will the freedom of others. And this is especially the case of oppression, which requires of you concrete ends. So we can say in the abstract on Zoom, um, Ashika, Lisbeth, I want to will your freedom. Your freedom is tied with my freedom. But what does that mean actually in the concrete when I don't know your particular situations, I know you from a conference, um, and we might also have different situations when it comes to oppression. Again, sexual oppression, gendered oppression, um, racial oppression, colonial oppression. There are many different oppressions out there. So what does it mean to will someone's freedom in the concrete for Beauvoir? she had to deal with her particular situation. Again, Nathalie Naya's um, book, she also has an article, um, deals with how Bouvard dealt with that ambiguity of wanting to will other people's freedom while being in the occupation or the situation as a colonizer. I don't have the time to get into that particular details of how colonizers or people living in that situation can work for the concrete freedom of others. But I think Bouvard at least again, reiterates the use of counterviolence or the use of violence in order to concretely end oppression, to concretely end the usage of treating people as objects. And she repeats almost, and the language is very similar from an eye for an eye, that our freedom which is interested only in denying freedom must be denied. An eye for an eye, she talks about execution. She talks about assassination. She talks about, again, people dying. That sometimes oppressors, colonizers must die in order for a concrete situation or for interhuman relations to actually be established. And if the oppressor or the colonizer disagrees with you and saying, you're limiting my freedom, Bouvard just reiterates, no, you, what you're really talking about is license. You want to be a sovereign where you're not, your freedom isn't tied or applicable to others. And yet Bouvard will always reiterate, especially in the ethics of ambiguity, that no, our freedoms are tied up with one another. 
freedom does not exist alone. Freedom is actually developed or uh, a possibility only with others. And it's with that notion of freedom that I turn now to, well, how are some thinkers, particularly decolonization thinkers in the 1960s, also dealing with oppression in a more, con or I, I don't wanna say in a more concrete way, just in a different situation, particularly with colonial oppression, racial oppression that Beauvoir did not face. Again, uh, we just had a whole presentation about sexual oppression. So I wanna be very careful with my language. But these notions of violence being used to end oppression, the notion that our ambiguity or our ambiguous relations tie us through interhuman relations or interdependency is something I wanna keep with us as we think with these other thinkers. And so when I turn out to decolonization in a very particular mode um, or process dealing with, again, colonization, colonial oppression, it also ties in, again, racial oppression, gendered oppression, they're all there as well. Um, so I can't get into the particulars, but I do want to know that a colonial oppression doesn't preclude other types of oppression as well, it doesn't preclude patriarchy, for example. But one thing to note that Franz Fanon in The Wretched of the Earth um, wrote specific, specifically that decolonization has been typically reduced to simply national liberation. So if you're talking about Algeria um, in the Freedom Liberation Front, FLN, that he was a part of, what? How will Algeria be decolonized? It will become its own state. It will, will no longer be a colony of France. For Amilcar Cabral, how will Cabo Verde and Guinea-Bissau no longer be colonies? They gain national liberation. But for non, decolonization isn't simply national liberation. It's not even national renaissance or what he calls cultural renaissance. It's also wealth redistribution. It's also disalienation. Again, Alienation caused by colonization requires, um, requires of us to deal with internalized oppression. And so here, I just wanted to note that using Fanon and Cabral has similar views, decolonization is not synonymous with national liberation. And this is where we get ambiguity, where we get notions of Bavarian freedom heavily tied into both thinkers, or at least I want to make these connections. So Fanon also notes that decolonization is quite simply the replacing of a certain species of men by another species. And he goes on even further on the same page to talk about how the substitution is an act of complete disorder because it's a mode of structural rearrangement. So, as a person that's oppressed with other oppressed individuals, how do you break that relationship? Fanon uses the language of disalienation in part of his work as a psychiatrist, part of his work as a revolutionary freedom fighter was to make men, and he uses the language men, um, we can go with human beings um, to make it more gender inclusive, to make human beings actional to make them repossess certain freedoms, i.e. to have them grasp their consciousness, their bodies, their cultures, their lands that were taken away from them and realize that they do have the abilities to 
demand of others to treat them like human beings. Fanon and Black Skin White Mass actually says that I only have one demand. To make sure that I treat other, uh, sorry, to make sure that others treat me like a human being. Now, when we're referring to decolonization, and it can be, I'm mostly dealing with African decolonization movements here. I think the same applies in Latin America, Asia as well. That part of this notion of decolonization, of breaking foundations and structural arrangements, even interpersonal relations of dominance or being treated as pure facticity, that these relations, according to Lewis Gordon, and this is following Fanon, are acts of complete disorder and acts of violence. But Gordon also notes that it's a tragic situation. Again, if you're dealing with Algeria, France did not want to let go of their French colony. That was the violence. That was the direct assault on people. And so if colonization aims to, again, acquire lands and hold them in perpetuity, again, W.E.B. Du Bois famously stated in The Souls of White Folks um, that whiteness is a possession of the earth forever and ever, amen. And what Fanon is dealing with in the 1960s is a French nation that is refusing to let go of a colony no matter what Algerians are saying on the ground. And so the tragic confrontation in this colonial and racist situation is that a price must be paid for the emergence of an interhuman society or interdependent society, um, what Fanon calls a new humanism. In order to break relationships based on oppression, violence is also gonna be used in order to reinstitute such a society. And I think this follows what Beauvoir's notion of violence or counterviolence as well. That yes, it is causing direct harm on people, on myself. Fanon notes that, again, decolonization harms people. His last chapter, The Wretched of the Earth, is um, colonial and mental disorder. He's noting the ways in which even freedom fighters are being negatively impacted because they have to treat combatants as objects. They have to kill people. They have to torture people. Um, again, a necessity of the situation, a necessity of freedom is doing violence. And that's a tragedy. It's not a wish. It's not a desire. But what Beauvoir would know, that if our freedom is dependent upon others and oppressors or colonizers are refusing to reinstitute new relations, then violence can be used in order to, again, break that hole. And Fanon is noting this. Uh, many other decolonization thinkers at the time are noting this as well. We went through the common avenues. We went, we did petitions. We tried to have democratic elections or at least vote for it. But if your colonial country or colonizing country does not want to let go, what are your, what conditions are you left with? And for both Fanon and Cabral, they're dealing with different empires, the French and Portuguese, but they're being met with denial. And so we have violence erupting. 
But importantly, decolonization is not simply violence. It doesn't simply aim to accomplish violence. Violence is a, a means. It's a means that can further deform people, Fanon warned that the people that are best able to liberate your country might not be the best to lead your country and reinstitute human relations. Again, that's in Wretched of the Year. He was warning people that the violence that we're gonna do to ourselves might not make us the leaders for a new human society because of what we've actually faced. So throughout decolonization, violence is part of it, national liberation, cultural renaissance, but also this notion of disalienation. And in particular, Fanon notes many points, whether in Black Skin, White Mass, which are the two quotes I have above, or in Wretched of the Earth, which is the last quote on the page. But he notes many instances where the alienation, the internalized oppression, it's actually affecting both the colonized and the colonizer, the oppressed and the oppressor. Everyone's being affected negatively by the situation. But authentic disalienation, again, decolonization does not aim for simply a liberated country. For Fanon, it aims for authentic disalienation. Black Skin White Mass was actually, again, called the disalienation of the Blacks before he was, um, had his title changed by his publisher to uh, be more popular. And again, it was a good change. It is a much more popular title. But in terms of my argument, knowing that Black Skin White Mass was called the disalienation of the Blacks, helps show the connections between internalized oppression and how for Fanon, the materialistic structures of the world of the colonial environment also have to be changed. So many countries face conditions of neocolonialism today. So they're formally free, but they're still tied to again, economic exploitation by former colonies or other countries. Things haven't changed materialistically. South Africa, uh, you had a new constitution, but why are the economic disparities even more? So again, formal liberation is not what's meant by decolonization. And for Fanon, what I really want to note with this quote, even though it's quite small, is that he says disalienation occurs, again, no longer being alienated, no longer being affected by internalized oppression, when things are restored to their proper places, not their original places. And this is gonna be very important for my next slide about cultural transformation. So Fanon, Wretched of the Earth quote is again, just reconfirming that no one is getting out of the situation scot-free. Violence is affecting us all, but in being compromised, this is a different notion of being complicit. You can face the violence of complicity within a violent structure, or you might be compromised in the fight to liberate people. Now, with that being said, I do have a slide on cultural transformation. Um, this is just another aspect of decolonization that I think is important. I think Cabral has very heavily similarities with Fanon that decolonization is not bringing back a prior tradition or prior culture. It's about creating new content, new conditions because colonization tries to mummify or zombify culture, make it um, relive itself as only being structured in the past but cultures are living. And I think that's very important to know when talking about a return to a source or being 
repossessed, that you're not returning to a prior state, but you're being allowed the possibility of new conditions with people um, and new traditions within your own culture. So I do wish I can talk about this, so maybe you can ask me questions, but with <laughs> the little bit of time I have left, I just have two slides that I think are actually more important for my argument. So one thing to note regarding the ambiguity of decolonization is I think that there are many modes in Beauvoir and Fanon Cabral. And here I cherry picked particular sections um, in the ethics of ambiguity where Beauvoir talks about the telos or goal of liberation or emancipation and the application of violence. Because both Fanon and Cabral have similar notions that the goal of decolonization, even though to set up a new man or new humanism, liberation, disalienation, you can't be blinded by that goal. Um, the goal does not allow you to, again, treat people of pure facticity without having a proper a, a, sorry, application of your methods. Violence isn't justified a priori. You're still always um, dealing with the anguish of your decisions and choices. And this is particularly important when we're talking about um, decolonization, um, because there's been a new work by Thomas Marr called The Spirit of Seriousness and Decolonization that I wanted to talk about. So again, this, like, if you just note the slide, the anti-colonial, the decolonial, I can just do a Q&A and I can go back to the slide and talk about it. We'll cheat. But here, Thomas Marr really deals with how decolonization is treated in a spirit of seriousness rather than an anguished and ambiguous condition. And for me, in order to have decolonization or repossession, you need to keep ambiguity and anguish alive. You can't treat the modes, methods, um, techniques as um, with passion or a mode of seriousness. They can't be completed facts or completed values, we always have to bring our thinking, our relations into it, or particularly our context. So with that, I will leave my last slide, because I knew I was going to go over, I warned you, so I feel like I did my due diligence, that for me, repossession is just bringing Beauvoir, Fanon, Cabral together, where it's meaning, decolonization, the meaning of it, is never fixed, it can't ever be fixed because then we're just in a spirit of seriousness again. We actually have to constantly win our techniques, our goals, our telos, our values. And for me, repossession is the language I use, particularly decolonial repossession. And here I have to give a shout out to Jennifer McWeeny um, because after our talk, I took 20, less than 24 hours and said, I think repossession might actually be mode of grasping or severe where it's a re-grasping of one's body, subjectivity, culture, and land. So as I work on this paper, I'm going to try to incorporate that. Um, I think it does work, but I think there are issues with Sefer, Sefer object, because Cesaire and Fanon talk about thingification. Um, Fanon in the zone of non-being actually talks about colonizers being outside of the object self-relation. So it might be a different mode of Sefer that I have to deal with, but I want to deal with it. And I want to, again, keep using this language of repossession to deal with these myriad issues, but I know I went way over time. So I will stop it here and thank you all for um, indulging me. Thank you so much, Dana, for this wonderful 
very complete, timely and thought-provoking presentation. We have about, let's check, 17 minutes left for questions. There's a question. I'm going to read it out. Thanks for this wonderful paper. The choice of your corpus is so original. What is the story behind your corpus? So in terms of the connections, so my dissertation was on Fanon and particularly about disalienation, decolonization, and I'm also Cape Verdean. So the work of Emilcar Cabral is <laughs> quite closely tied to, again, my, my parents and most of my family members um, that were older than me were actually colonial subjects of Portugal. They were born as colonial subjects because Cabo Verde gained independence in 1975. And so as an intellectual, as an academic, I'm always trying to think of my relations and my situational context. And what does it mean for me to have parents that were colonial subjects and that were forced to immigrate to the United States in order to survive? Now, in terms of decolonization, I'm also heavily attracted to the work of Simone de Beauvoir. Um, particularly, I love the ethics of ambiguity and her, her section on oppression, emancipation, and liberation. I've always wanted to see if I could tie it to these thinkers that have also connected um, my lives. And fortunately, I did see connections, but I'm also presenting this for the first time. So if you guys want to push back as well, I'm more than happy because, again, this is the first time presenting this work. And you guys, um, how would I put this? I had such a great time yesterday with all the questions and the discussions. So this is like a perfect area for me to really face anything. So I like trial by fire. You can yell at me for going over time, for having too much on your slides. I'm here for all of it. Kathleen, hey. do you want to respond? I, I was. I wanted to uh, thank uh, Dana uh, for bringing out uh, what a peripheral figure and among the coral of revolutionary figures uh, in Africa, the Lusophone region is always like uh, staying in the margin. So I was really very glad and we could do the same uh, exercise over for other minor figures in the, in the history of decolonization. No, I, I was just uh, complimenting him. I think it's a very uh, uh, original take and uh, I really would like to learn more and we'll read more on Cabral. Thank you. Thank you. Ashika, you have a question. Uh, thank you, Dana, so much for a really, really wonderful presentation. I hope my question can kind of give you that time as well to maybe ask about, uh, to, to discuss and explain about cultural transformation, but uh, maybe you could also add to that. I have a specific question about cultural transformation in the context of the nation state, precisely because as you said, um, the sort of formal liberation that a lot of colonial countries have been given is independence as in the nation state format. And I'm very curious as how you see repossession in light of those state dynamics, the nation state also being a very European project and highly Eurocentric project. Um, it's a big question, so, but I'm just really very, very interested in your interpretation of cultural transformation in light of those dynamics through these thinkers. Thank you. In terms of cultural transformation, I think with this presentation on Fanon and Cabral, I think they have a particular mindset in the 1960s, where part of the liberation project was, in a sense, almost a priori nationalism even Fanon talking about a national culture, a national consciousness, 
Whereas more modern thinkers, particularly in the indigenous tradition, Leanne Simpson, for instance, Glenn Coutard, have pushed me further on thinking of what cultural transformation or even liberation might look like where it doesn't automatically follow a nation state model. So I think more modern thinkers have definitely pushed me further to say that the thing transformed by reinstituting or rearranging new relationships with people might not be best realized or be optimal in a nation state model for all people, particularly even in, if you're talking about Cabral. So cultural transformation was heavily based on re-Africanization because Cape Verdeans, um, one thing we're noted for historically, particularly in the Portuguese project, is that we're one of the first Creole nations in the world or Creole people. So if I'm saying I'm Cape Verdean, a different terminology I'd use is I'm Creole. You're Creole if you're a woman. So the notion of being Creole people was heavily tied to lusotropicalism, that Cape Verdeans and being closer to the Portuguese could be the middlemen in Africa. And so what Cabral wanted to do with cultural transformation, he didn't want to simply reinstitute something in the past because Cabo Verde was discovered in, 14, in the 1400s and was, according to records, deserted. So there was no real past to go to um, beforehand, but you still have the African continent. And so instead of being tied to the Portuguese project, he wanted to re-Africanize Creole people to one, have greater international or at least African connection. So even in Cabral, it's not necessarily the formation of Guinea-Bissau in Cabo Verde, we're done. For him, it is about using African culture to create African connections. So most people don't know, unless they're studying Lusophone literature or Lusophone history, that Guinea-Bissau and Cabo Verde were supposed to be one nation. It didn't happen, they split off. The PAGC is much stronger. Um, the party Cabral created is much stronger in Guinea-Bissau than it is in Cabo Verde recently. And so I think what Cabral was wanting to do was not tie cultural transformation to a particular nation state model. He wanted to, again, make it more African. Now, how far he went and if this is more international or greater scope or more distinct, something I still want to look more into. But I think Fanon, especially, his was the nation state model but he did criticize particular members in the FLN for wanting to reinstitute oppressive traditional culture instead of, again, embracing new relations. So he criticized individuals in the FLN who wouldn't allow um, a Piedmont or Jewish individuals. And he said, no, the new co country we're creating, it's gonna be similar to Haiti. In the revolution, anyone who works with us, fights for us, enters the struggle is going to be Algerian. So there are distinctions there. I think they were more progressive for their time period, but the nation state model, the Westphalian system is still heavily centered. Whereas I think 2021, I think there's more allowances to think differently or more creatively. We have three more questions and about eight minutes left. So we need to be a bit quick. First, we have Adam. Thank you. Uh, I have a quick question. Uh, these like post-war French intellectuals who speak about violence in positive terms, had they read or were they inspired by your Sorel at all who written the reflections of violence or was that contextualized as too far right for them? 
So for I can speak more on Cabral. So Cabral in the Lucifer um, context wasn't really influenced by French thinkers or like <laughs> hardly at all. Um, they were still in the African continent. He had to deal with colonies that were French colonies. So in that context, I know he didn't read the book or wasn't influenced by many French thinkers. For Fanon, I haven't seen anything in his library um, in Algeria that hints at it. And I haven't seen anyone make those connections. Um, it might be there, but I haven't really studied in depth on that particular connection. I just, I don't think there is. Thanks. Then we have a question by Mikael that is in the chat, so I'll read it out. Uh, do you think that this political conception of ambiguity is also linked to a critique of the orthodox Marxist teleology, according to which history follows a linear course? This was also the question on my mind, more or less. So I'm very curious about your answer. So I actually, I actually was going to include another slide and then took it out. So I had more slides, people. I had more quotes. Um, but in the ethics of ambiguity, there's actually a section, um, and it's in the oppression section in chapter two, where Beauvoir talks about Marxism and she criticizes particularly Stalinist ideology or Stalinist components that say violence can be utilized because we have history on our side and the Marxist project is theological, it's towards a certain goal. And so anything in the name of history, in the name of of communism, Marxism, Stalin, however you want to phrase it, in the mode of teleology can be done. And Bouvoir actually has a direct criticism. And that's why I included the section on application and methodology that there's nothing for Bouvoir that can be known a priori. So if a Marxist teleology says we can know our goal a priori and every step will be justified by that goal, Bouvard is going to fight back and say, no, everything is situational and contextual. Everything requires an anguished decision on our part. We have to deal with the ambiguity of our conditions. We have to deal with the fact that our decisions can enact bloodshed. And so for Bouvard, she has, again, in the ethics of ambiguity, a direct confrontation, a direct, I'd say, direct issues with teleology. And I think Fanon as well in his writings also has issues with teleology, the notion that goals can be breached. Like even if you're talking about black skin, white mass or the wretched of the earth, he, he doesn't really give you guidelines what a new humanism is or what you need to do to institute it because that's situational, that's contextual, that's on the ground, it's ambiguous. If you don't, you're just dealing with Thomas Mars' notion of the anti-colonial, the decolonial that I have decolonization as the goal. And teleologically, anything I can do is justified. And both Mar and myself will disagree with that notion. I think Fanon and Cabral would as well. Thank you. All right, we have uh, two more questions left in four minutes. So let's try to do this. First, we have Hans Georg. Yes, thank you. Um, I have a question on the practical side of ambiguity. I was wondering, I mean, just to make, to uphold ambiguity in those struggles uh, as an individual to feel that anguish is one thing. But I was wondering, how do you actually keep up the spirit, so to speak, of ambiguity as a, in, a, in a collective group, in a collective group decision-making process? Um, so I was wondering, is there anything in Beauvoir or do you have any ideas, Dana, on how this could work, how, how groups, collectives can, can, can remain this, 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 um, 
yeah, spirit of ambiguity in a very heated decolonial struggle. Thank you for the question. I think Beauvoir, and this is why I'm also interested in ambiguity in the, in the case of oppression, liberation, or emancipation, is because Beauvoir reaches a state in both an eye for an eye and the ethics of ambiguity where she says, when it comes to oppression, we can use violence and this can be murder, this can be death, it can be war. And that's not unambiguous. And both Fanon and Cabral, once you know that you're being oppressed or treated like an object or thingified, there's not a lot of ambiguity in the sense that something has to be done in order to end that situation. And that's where I really entered in this conversation. Well, if decolonization isn't unambiguous, that it has to be done in order to be free, in order to reinstitute human relations, is it really in the spirit of ambiguity? And I think, although Beauvoir doesn't talk about like, actual struggles or intense struggles in the ethics of ambiguity of how do you keep ambiguity alive? I think that's why I wanted to deal with Fanon and Cabral, even though I have particular philosophical reasons or personal reasons. I think their literature was always, I'm entering in a decolonial struggle, but I'm, I can't enter it ever in a spirit of seriousness. That things always have to be contested. I always have to enter in a state of anguish and both the outcomes and my decisions are going to be ambiguous because I'm doing it with other people. Like Cabral in Guinea-Bissau, he instituted schools um, and Fanon in his writing wanted to have a decentralized model of government, that the capital would move and leaders would shift because it's not simply a decision of one person or one leader. It's how do you get the entire nation to really face up to the responsibility of their freedom and their anguish. And so it's messy. The decisions are messy, the consequences are messy, but I think it's truer to a spirit of ambiguity, even though they always have an unambiguous end. Like we want decolonization, we want human relations, we want, it to, be treat, we want to treat others and be treated as human. That's never unambiguous. I think it's more of the process of getting there and how you treat that aim or that goal. So I hope that helps um, a little bit. Thank you so much. We're out of time for this Q&A. Thank you so much for all these great questions and discussions. Thank you again Thank you, everyone. for a great presentation. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as we did. Information about relevant literature mentioned in the episode can be found on the description of this podcast. Stay tuned and we hope to see you back soon.